Hello, hello. It's Kate again, back to talk about some more fish and ocean and data ideas. In our last episode, we talked about the different kinds of data, the different types of data, and that data can be anywhere you look or listen. Sometimes when we're talking about data, you might actually have access to a big pile of data, an open lake of data posted online or a stash of old files on a hard drive, maybe even a physical file cabinet with paper files. And you could just go exploring in that data. You could start from the data in front of you and look for patterns, for outliers, for trends and changes over time, and then say, I wonder why that is. In that case, you're coming up with your questions, your hypotheses, after the fact, after you've looked at your data. In that case, you want to enjoy the time you have with your data and also be careful to ask what you might be missing, what the gaps are in that pile of data before you get to any conclusions. Say, for example, you were looking at 20 years worth of data of people visiting all the parks in your state, and you wanted to say, huh, what is the most popular park? Before you came to that conclusion, you might want to ask, have all the parks been open the same amount of time? How far is each park from a town or a city? Are there parks that turn people away because they get too busy so those people aren't counted? What about that year it rained so hard they closed half the parks for trail repairs? Sometimes you can make great finds in data that's collected for a completely unknown purpose. But more often, you might have a hand in collecting the data or you might be able to find out what the purpose was behind collecting the data. Someone collected it for a reason, because collecting, analyzing, and storing data isn't free. And most of us have limited time and money. That means someone at some point sat down and said, what are the questions we need to answer? And what kind of data will help us answer them? That's coming up with a data strategy or a data plan. Maybe you're the person in charge of coming up with that data strategy or data plan to use your time and money for data wisely. In fisheries, data plans have a specific home and a specific list of ingredients and a very official name. It's part of the fisheries management plan. That's capital F, capital M, capital P. I'm not gonna go into all the details of how fisheries management works in the United States in this particular podcast, but if there's a lot of demand, I will do a special Magnuson Stevens Law and Fisheries podcast. I'll also link to some extra resources when we post this online. But essentially, fishery management plans are a thing in the United States because one, there's a law that says we have to have them. And two, when you actively monitor and manage fisheries, the fisheries tend to work better. They tend to be more sustainable in the long term and better able to support the ecology of the ocean, as well as the people who are making a living from the fish. Take it from this January 2020 paper, looking at the state of fish populations around the world that said, and I quote, compared with regions that are intensively managed, regions with less developed fisheries management have, on average, threefold greater harvest rates, and half the abundance as assessed stocks. Translation, weaker management means the populations of fish are smaller, and they're more likely to be threatened by excessive rates of fishing that push the populations further and further into decline. So, in the United States, we have fishery management plans. Those plans include data plans, and goals and objectives for fisheries that flow down from the law that help determine what data are going to be collected and analyzed under the fishery management plan. For example, fishery management plans have to 
quote, prevent overfishing and rebuild overfish stocks, as well as to, quote, protect, restore, and promote the long-term health and stability of the fishery. Well, what kind of data are you going to need for that? Sea surface temperature, bottom temperature, temperature profiles of the water column, salinity profiles, acidity profiles, oxygen profiles, economic information, fish prices, fuel prices, permit prices. State trip tickets, NOAA logbooks, and annual and per trip cost surveys. Vessel monitoring systems. And there's so much more. How long do the fish live? How many babies do the fish have at the time? How well do those babies survive? Where do the fish spawn? What do the fish eat? Are fishing boats staying within the catch limits? Are they going over the catch limits? Are they not coming anywhere close to the catch limits? Sometimes, when you ask a scientist, they will say, you should collect all the data. You can never have too much data, and we should store it forever. But remember, it's still true that we don't have infinite time and money and data storage capacity. So we have to make some choices. I decided to go to an expert to talk about how we make choices about what we're going to keep track of when it comes to fisheries data, Dr. Bill Karp. And I particularly wanted to talk to Bill about a distinction that we make in fisheries between fishery-dependent data and fishery-independent data, which is a much bigger deal than just the two letters I-N. And also a little inscrutable to me because even though I've worked in this space for a very long time, I don't look at forestry or surfing and see discussions of surfing-dependent data or tree-dependent data. Fishery-dependent data and fishery-independent data are two big categories that we talk about a lot in this space, but where did they come from? You'll also hear us talk about stock assessments, which is fisheries speak for how many fish are there in the sea, because there are not always more fish in the sea. We like to use the word stocks, in fisheries instead of populations. But when we say stock assessments, we're talking about the number of fish, not some type of special fish soup. Let's go see what Bill has to say. Do you want me to call you Dr. Carp? No, Bill is what everybody calls me. Dr. Carp <laughs> makes me feel as if I'm at a council meeting. <laughs> and how would you describe your background and expertise? I've done uh, a lot of things uh, related to fish and fisheries over the last 40 years. I've worked in technology development, collection and interpretation of fishery-dependent data, collection and interpretation of fishery-independent data. I've worked closely with the industry and with other branches of government in coordinating research and trying to integrate um Fish, fishermen's perspectives and data collected by the fishing industry into the mainstream of data that's that's used for stock assessment and characterizing the condition of fish stocks. Um, and I've had various administrative and, and oversight roles while working for NOAA, uh, both in uh, on the West Coast and Alaska and in the Northeast. So you're sort of retired? Uh, yes, I, I'm, I think I could... So that I've failed at retiring. I'm, I'm still a U.S. delegate to um, ICES, which is the International Council for Exploration of the Sea, which deals with many of these same issues um, in an international arena. So you mentioned that you've worked on fishery-dependent and fishery-independent data. And this episode of the podcast is really talking a little bit more about types of data specific to fisheries 
And I wanted to dig into this issue of fishery dependent and fishery independent data. They seem like unique terms. I can't find another natural resource issue or area where people talk about use dependent data or non-use dependent data. So do you know where these terms came from? I don't know precisely when the, the terms were, were coined, but I do know that the 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 first sort of data streams that were used for stock assessment or something resembling stock assessment were really um, data streams that came from commercial fishing operations. They had to do with characterizing fishing mortality and characterizing fishing mortality by age in a population that allowed estimating some of the population parameters. And, and, and I think that that's where the term fishery dependent came from because it, it was really catch data broken down by uh, size and age and maybe other categories. And probably, although I, again, I, I, I can't attest to this, when surveys started to happen and become a sort of mainstream source of data, then the distinction was made that a survey that's conducted independently of fishing operations would then become uh, fishery independent. In order to calculate or measure the amount of fishing mortality or what's captured by the, by the commercial fleet, you have to collect data either on board a fishing vessel or at the point of delivery. There is no other way to measure what fishing mortality is, and fishing mortality is an essential property uh, in the process of um, estimating the status of a population and projecting its productivity. But fishery-independent data is something that scientists gets to design however they want to be, right? Like, it's, what are we going to measure? We're scientists. Well, and, and also because uh, fishing operations are highly selective, then they only tell us about where the fishermen go and what and what they harvest. And what we really want to know is uh, more information about where the fish are in space and time and how that changes and what the uh, the overall size and age composition of the population is rather than just the the um, the harvested portion and some information also on recruitment which is generally uh, easier to ascertain from surveys carried out on fish that are below the size that they would recruit into the commercial fishery right because from a scientific perspective, from a fishery independent perspective, some of the data you want is about fish that have no value to commercial or recreational fishers. They're baby fish, they're uh, fish that are too big to fit on a plate, so you can't sell them. Uh, they're, they're fish that are maybe important food species for the commercially important fish and swim with them, but that the fishermen are trying not to catch. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say no value because a young fish, of course, has potential value if it's a harvested species. And similarly, an older fish, which may be um, a suboptimal size, is making a significant contribution to the reproductive capacity, which, again, is supporting recruitment that brings harvestable fish into the population. That's a good point. I I shouldn't say no value. In terms of thinking about how the data get gathered and captured, it's that if you're a commercial or recreational fisher and you're trying to target a specific fish to make money off of it or because that's what your clients want, it's not that those fish that are too big or too small have no value. 
in your overall experience of someone working as a fisher. It's more that they're just not what you're going to target. So you're just not going to get data about them because you're not chasing them on your boat. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, to the best of your ability, you want to avoid them because all they're going to do is take time while you're trying to catch your you know, targeted species and size or take up space in your hold. I remember somebody in the sport fishing community who told me once that if they could figure out a way to have divers swim along under their boat with bite-sized fish in a cage and then hook those fish onto their clients' lines, that would be the perfect sport fishing situation because you could always ensure you got just the right fish for your clients and you never caught the wrong ones. That's a very interesting <laughs> sort of um, <clears throat> a picture. And, and, and interestingly... You know, in today's world, more and more uh, underwater cameras are being used by by fishermen, um, and in um, in some of the pelagic midwater trawl fisheries, they're actually able to see uh, in uh, in pretty good detail what it is that's about to be caught by the net, and that is beginning to enable some kind of um, strategic behavior with regards to how you adjust the net to avoid what you don't want or catch what you do want. Yeah, that's that's some great new innovation going on out there. So back on the fishery independent and fishery dependent data, thinking about long-term goals for industry and government and science, ideally you want to have both of those kinds of data, right? Fishery independent and fishery dependent data. But it seems like often you have a lot more fishery dependent data. Yes. I mean, surveys are expensive and surveys are limited in terms of the spatial and temporal coverage. Um, particularly temporal. So, you know, fishing often goes on at, uh, through the year or at times of the year when, when surveys are not taking place. Um, and so there's, there's gaps in just information on who's where and, and what you find in different, pl- in different places at different times to correct my tongue tiedness. Um, and, and, and that's a very important part of understanding what's going on out there. And if there's fishing going on, then there is fishery-dependent information being generated. Um, for surveys, that requires a big investment. And generally, it's difficult to justify that for anything but the most valuable stocks or in a sort of multi-species way as part of, a, of an assemblage of, of, of multiple stocks that might be surveyed simultaneously. So... You can still do fisheries management if you just have fishery-dependent data, though. You, you, you've you spent a lot of time, the scientists have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to set the right catch levels and set good management parameters with just fishery-dependent data. Yes, it's done in a lot of places. And, and if it's all that's available, then then you have, you have to work with that. And uh, it requires more assumptions and perhaps more uncertainty, but it, it's certainly not impossible. And if you were going to start a fishery from scratch, maybe there's almost no fishing going on, and you had a million dollars to go get some data, what would you start with? <laughs> That's a very good question. I'd want to know at least something about the distribution of the of the fish in space and time, the 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 productivity, and the the and and whatever it is that we know about sustainable harvest levels or maximum sustainable yields uh, for similar species in similar environmental conditions. And I don't think you would ever find a stock of fish that is 
uh, yet to be harvested, for which we know uh, very little. Um, so that would that that would be a starting point, just a, um, a sort of a reality check of what 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 kind of a population are we looking at, and what what can we expect? Um, and I I think that initially one way to think about this would would be then to allow a very limited commercial fishery and use that as a starting point to to collect more information to help to fill in the the unknowns. I asked you if you what would you do with a million dollars, and I, I realized I just picked a million dollars. A million dollars actually seems like a lot of money for some of these fisheries management things. You'd be really excited to get, you know, twenty five k for some of these research projects. Do you have a favorite kind of data to work with? I I really like having a lot of different sources of information and kinds of information to help put together this puzzle of understanding what's going on out there. Uh, it's, it makes it more challenging in a way because you've got data with different um, uh, levels of resolution in space and time and some issues with regards to differences in quality. But the more different kinds of information that you have, the more checks and balances you have and the more you can build a, at least a conceptual model of, of what kind of a, a population you're, you're looking at. As a scientist, of course, the idea of a survey and working in a fishery independent mood is attractive because you have control and you can, you can work, um, and you can design the survey and collect the data in the way that you think best meets, uh, your needs. But, but working with fishery dependent data actually requires you to interact with the fishing industry. And I don't think that you can be an effective assessor, stock assessor, or manager, unless you have uh, meaningful interactions with the fishing industry. So for me, that's always been a very necessary and and rewarding part of of what I've done. I think what you're doing here is trying to keep this conversation out of the technical arena, which which is great, because I was all ready to start talking about, you know, virtual population analysis and some of the technical stuff. But in reality, I, I like the idea of, of a conversation like this and more kind of recognizing what these concepts are in terms that makes makes sense, hopefully, to anyone who's interested. It's a system that relies on honest and quality engagement with the fishing community, too. And so expecting everyone to have to be an expert data scientist is unrealistic. But knowing that everybody is an important part of the data system and that we all have some responsibility to helping create good data and steward good data and be aware of how that data is being used. That's a lot more of what I'm trying to do with this particular project. But you know what? Uh, one, one thing that strikes me as being cool is that what you really want to do, or I think you really want to do, is get youngsters more interested in the concept of data and data science and comfortable with the terminology and the reality of of, of what data is and what it can be used for. So the more these kinds of conversations can happen that kind of engage uh, people in the formative stages of their careers or before, the more they're going to realize that this is not something that's intimidating, it's actually something that's quite interesting and quite necessary. What a pleasure to talk to Bill on the record. I deeply enjoyed that. I hope you did too. And I want to mention one particular thing that Bill talked about, and that is the importance of integrating industry perspectives in gathering data. 
because it's one of the things that I often work on, which is using design principles to get better data. Boats are noisy, they're cramped, they're slippery, they get tossed around in the waves. Saltwater corrodes electronics really fast. Fishing is often periods of frantic activity separated by long, boring stretches of just steaming around. Research surveys, those fishery-independent research surveys we just talked about, can have similar rhythms. Like when a trawl net pulls the fish in, all the scientists jump into action and start counting fish and labeling fish and measuring fish. But otherwise, you might just be playing cards and reading books. You don't have time to sit down and look at your data until long after the frenzy of processing data has happened. So whether you're trying to get fishermen to submit data or scientists to gather data on a research vessel, you're likely to get better data if you design methods that make it easy and intuitive to capture it. For example, some researchers use speech recognition software and waterproof tablets so that they can talk into a headphone mic and say, six copper rockfish, instead of having to pick up and put down a fish and then a pencil and make marks on a piece of paper or punch buttons on a slippery phone. Even just using pencils and waterproof paper can be a thoughtful improvement over an electronic device that's going to break right away or some flimsy regular printer paper. Whether data collection is your main job or it's something you have to do as part of your job, it's more enjoyable when the data systems work with how you work and accommodate the limitations of where you are, whether that's a noisy room or a place with no cell service. Here's to getting the data you need to answer your data questions, whatever that depends on, and maybe finding some fun and clever ways to get it. This episode was produced by Melanie Scroggins. Thanks to Jordan Watson, Brett Alger, Scott Crossan, and Bill Karp for talking about data. And also thanks to the Stakeham's Frozen Meat Slices Twitter account, which wants to remind us all that anecdotes are not data. Good data is carefully measured and collected information based on a range of subject-dependent factors, including, but not limited to, controlled variables, meta-analysis, and randomization. <laughs>